This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to say that I'm joined on Football CFB this evening by a very esteemed referee, a referee who's uh, refed at the highest level in Scottish football, has also refereed across Europe uh, at FIFA and UEFA level as well, which, to be honest with you, on, on Football CFB, getting a guest with such insight is just an absolute pleasure. So, Stuart Dougal, thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Callum, and uh, thank you for asking me on to share some of my stories and experiences with uh, you and your your listeners. The, the, I just want to touch on something we said off here, Stuart. I, I've got to start with the first question being describe your love of the game, because for some reason, lots of football fans, I, I suppose when I was growing up, I was guilty of this as well. We just see referees as the man in the middle. We never really think about their love of the game, because at the end of the day, you wouldn't be a referee if you didn't love football. That's for sure. Uh, and uh, it's a good question. And um, probably the easiest way to answer it is that very few young people, young guys in particular, uh, set out to be a referee. You fall into it. And I literally fell into it uh, because I loved playing at football. And uh, once I had an accident, and I broke my back. And uh, when I was around um, 20, or I can't remember, I was 22 or something like that. And uh, I couldn't play football any longer. And my dad's friend had been a, a football referee back in the 60s, a guy called. Um, his name's just great out of my head. That's, a, that's an age thing. Uh, Callum, that'll come back to me. Um, but uh, Jim uh, Kelly. Uh, sorry, I'm hesitating over this. I don't know if you can edit this out, Callum. But uh, Joe Kelly was his name. There, we've got it. And... Um, Eventually, you know, Joe persuaded me to go and take up the, the refereeing exam. But uh, prior to that, as a young lad, I was never without a football. I've got, you know, family photographs of me when I was three, four years old, standing with the ball as if I was a, a, a top professional. Sadly, I never made it to become a top professional uh, football uh, player. But I, I think I did okay in the refereeing and I was uh, delighted to stay involved at the highest level, being a referee, because I couldn't have done it as a football player. You mentioned sort of falling into refereeing, the, the fact that you have that incident when you're younger, you break your back, which means you're not going to pursue football as, as a realistic career as a result of that. When when you make that route into refereeing, what's it like at the early stages as you develop through the system? And when was the first time, Stuart, you thought, I can make a go of this and become a professional referee in Scottish football? Well, it's, it's a, again another very good question. That um, the, the first thing that struck me was when I went to the refereeing exams, and the reason I went to the refereeing exams was I was coaching my uh, primary school, uh, New Mains Primary, and I, I wanted to learn a wee bit more about the laws of the game through through the, the chap Joe Kelly. That I finally remembered his name, and um, when I went to the refereeing classes. The guy's called Mick Delaney, and Mick is, uh, to the older listeners, might remember he was the guy that sent off Sunnis in his first game at Easter Road. Um, and, and another chap, John Deary, who was a top 
linesmen way back in the day did cup finals with Tiny Watson. And these guys talk you through the laws of the game. And for somebody who grew up steeped in the game, I was there every morning, every Saturday morning with my, my, my uh, shoot uh, magazine. I was away playing with the school, then came back and played with the boys' clubs, etc. I thought I knew everything about football. And you know what? You know very little about football when it comes to the laws of the game. So that was the first thing that really opened my eyes to it. And then secondly was how difficult it is to actually either run the line, which was my first assignment in an under-13 match up at Lanark. Things you can remember. I can't remember names, but I can remember my first games. And um, it was just it was just seen as going to be this tremendous challenge uh, to get out in the pitch, particularly the, the early stages when you are, as I say, I was 22, 23, um, refereeing some of the under 10s, under 11. So you're trying to pass on a wee bit of your football knowledge as well as uh, try to referee their matches. And in terms of growing into the game in a professional capacity, what what do you remember from your first appointment to, to the professional level? And and be honest, how do you feel at that point? Because when we, when I talk to players, you get some players that say straight out the bat, I was confident, I knew that I'd earned my chance. Whereas you get others that say they went into the game thinking, please don't make a mistake. Where did you fall in that category? Well, most referees go into any game hoping that they don't make a mistake. But the, the, the early days, is you go through a, a process of the the youth football and amateur football. And, and, and as you go through them, it's just like your football career. Games get tougher um, and, and you get challenged more. And it was probably, I went into the tenant Caledonian League, which was a departure. Normally you would go up through youth, amateur, junior football, and then you would be running the line at senior games whilst refereeing the top junior games. I had a wee bit of the juniors, but there'd been a new set up with SFA and it was tenant Caledonian League, which was seen as a better quality of football. Um, not as challenging as the juniors, which I, I think was a great um, learning curve for any any referee that goes through the juniors. Um, so I was lucky enough to go through the, the, the Tenant Caledonian uh, leagues where there was probably better discipline and a probably higher standard of football. But uh, naturally, as you get, then got the, the, into reserve football, that's, that was your next step. You're running the line at the senior football and then you got into the reserve list. So you're now then refereeing um, senior players, the youth, uh, promising players, and it becomes really challenging. But I, I never at any stage felt that I can't do this. You had some games where you went home at night and you literally you're putting in the bag in, in the cupboard and saying, I don't think I'm going to go buy it because that wasn't too good. But a day or two passes and it's the challenge uh, as well that drives you forward. You want to make sure you get these things right more often than not. So it's, um, I never had this uh, doom and gloom, but I never also did that. I believe that I would um, referee at the level that I refereed at and, you know, lucky enough to have done cup finals both at home and abroad. So um, it's not something that you think too far in front when you're a referee, I don't think. And in terms of making your first strides into refereeing, again, when, when I speak to players, you, you normally hear, about a mentor being a senior player in the dressing room who maybe plays in a similar position or has been through a similar situation when, when they were that player's age and they take them under their wing. In refereeing, was there a particular mentor for you as you were breaking into the pro setup? Aye, there's, there's probably a, a few at different levels. I mentioned uh, John Deary and Mick Delaney earlier. So 
they were all part of the Lanarkshire referees. That was the association I was in, uh, was Lanarkshire. Um, so every meeting uh, or every week at training, you would see these guys and naturally they were keen to hear how you're getting on at the early stages. Um, through the, through the, the Lanarkshire, the top referees at the time were guys like Don McVicker, um, George Cumming, Les Mortram. So these guys were all a great help uh, to me. Um, but my closest uh, pal in refereeing, and, and he was five years ahead of me, so he was a great mentors maybe. Um, well, he was a mentor as well as just a, a, a somebody who I aspired uh, to be like was Hugh Dallas. And Hugh, as I said, um, been in the Lanarkshire referees five years in front of me. So I could kind of look at Hugh and think, yeah, that's my next step. Uh, sorry, next step. So that's, uh, he didn't necessarily take me as a mentor me. That would probably be more uh, Don McVicker and uh, George Cumming with Big Les. But uh, Hugh was the guy who I watched closely. And I have to say, and there's no bias here, um, I think Hugh was arguably the best referee in the world at his peak. People talk about guys like Kalina and uh, Anders Frisk and, and, and many others uh, that were around at the same time. But Hugh was definitely their equal, if not better. So I was blessed to be surrounded by such experience, but also enjoyed watching guys like Kenny Hope uh, back in the day. Kenny, I think, um, helped me with my style. Um, Kenny liked to go on with the players, but he was nobody's fool and uh, he didn't suffer any nonsense in the pitch. But if players wanted to work with him, uh, Kenny allowed that to happen. But there was many, Tom Wharton, I'm going back, uh, I'm reluctant to name too many because there'll be people that I've missed uh, out uh, that I should have mentioned. But um, it's a great family in one level. Um, but I think what fans forget as well is that it's quite competitive because I want to referee the next Old Firm game. I want to referee the next cup final that comes out. So as much as being part of that family, uh, there, is a, there is a wee edge to make sure that you're performing to the extent that you are going to be considered for these bigger games. On the, the the sort of logistics and pressures of refereeing, you mentioned Hugh Dallas there, and, and, and I want to ask you about Hugh in the sense that he was a referee, as you mentioned, who had a peak where he was at the top of the game, the top of his craft. But with that, as you know, through his career, came incredible pressures, as, as happened for Kalina, Howard Webb, Michael Oliver, Matt Clattenburg, all of these referees who were, were, were used to seeing on screen and, and seeing referee the biggest games. In terms of dealing with pressure as a referee, how did you handle that? And is that where you would maybe confide in somebody like 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 you, who, as you, as I said, was was at the top of his game and 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 at such a level where the scrutiny was incredibly intense each and every game? Aye, no question that uh, Lyndon Hugh and learned so much from him. Um, a lot of the stuff that's not necessarily on the pitch about how to handle players and various positioning and things like that um, that, that helped by watching him refereeing and others, to be fair. Um, but Hugh, where Hugh helped in particular was educating me how to deal with the uh, the, the press, how to deal with fans uh, in the street rather than uh, in the grounds. And I do remember once we were walking up uh, Sucky Hall Street and Hugh was um, not at the peak of his career, but he was refereeing regularly live games and it was just at the time of B Sky B. So it wasn't as wall-to-wall -wall coverage as it is now. And, um, you know, somebody would shout at Hugh and Hugh said to me, and I remember it clearly where we were standing as well, he says, this is going to actually get worse for you. 
in about five years' time, he says, because there's more and more cameras coming into the game and you will have nowhere to hide both on the pitch and more importantly off it. So it's important that you know how to handle situations so that you don't have any flashpoints, but also, you know, you don't allow anybody to um, just, as they say in the West here, take a line of you. Um, so, you know, it was things like that that were good. Dealing with the press, you know, we, we or I, you know, had a good relationship with the press, even though officially we were not allowed to speak to the press. Um, but there are certain things that um, you've got to work together. Um, and uh, so a, a fantastic uh, a education I had at the um, feet or whistle of Hugh Dallas. And in terms of growing into refereeing and getting games under your belt, do you feel that the more games you you are refereeing at the at the higher levels that you grow in confidence and and when you get that confidence, you feel like I've arrived here, but not in a complacent way, in a sense that I know I deserve to be amongst these fellow referees and I know I'm capable of refereeing. You mentioned the old firm game or cup finals or cup semi-finals, whatever those big occasions may be. Yeah, I think uh, you said they're uh, capable. I think that's the key thing is is where you have the confidence to believe that you are able and capable of handling the bigger games. Um, no question, you still get nervous um, before most games, uh, regardless of the size, because it just takes one or two uh, bad mistakes or unfortunate situations on the pitch that maybe you're not uh, used to dealing with week in, week out, and you just want to make sure you can handle them and you know how to handle them. A lot of it is reactive. You can go in, you know, pre-match and do preparation, but it's really what is thrown at you during the game. And it comes in all, you know, all shapes and sizes. Uh, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in a game, who's going to react in a particular way. And that's why it's also important that you never second guess a player. There are very few players who were consistent in their approach and the way that they played. So somebody could flare up, the most mild-mannered player could flare up and you would need to know how to deal with that as well as the ones that you knew were probably more aggressive and uh, in your face. So it's uh, there's a, again, there's a number of things in there, Callum, that uh, you've got to take into consideration when um, you are thinking, am I able to take the next step? And, and, and how do you know that? Well, largely, um, it's down to what the, the SFA supervisors and uh, the obviously heads of refereeing are telling at the time as well. Because if you're getting your weekly reports from your games and they're all, um, you know, top marks and very positive, that gives you the confidence that you can go into the next level. Talk me through how you prepared for each match in terms of research, your mindset, and crucially, did you have any superstitions? Because, again, in the in the crazy world, as you know, of players and managers, you get certain players that wore the same socks if they felt they had a good game or whatever it may be. Did, did, that, did you have anything like that at all? No, no superstition uh, as such, um, but I, I did try as part of my preparation to have a, a, a hot bath before I went to the game, obviously, you couldn't really get a bath at, uh, at the football. Um, but part of my Saturday morning, if it was a traditional Saturday, three o'clock kickoff, um, I would like to have a, a nice relaxing bath to let myself think about the game that I'm getting into, you know, highlight in my mind some of the, uh, the players, some of the situations that I might have had before uh, with certain players or certain uh, games recently. Um, but it was more about physical preparation um, rather than mental preparation. Uh, as I said earlier, it, it's hard to you know, properly prepare yourself for a game because you don't really know what's coming. So as long as you're physically fit and that you're healthy 
and that you're kind of stress-free. I do admit uh, to later on in my career that um, of a Friday evening, I, I would have a couple of glasses of red wine with my meal. You know, most people would steer away from that. Players would steer away from that. But Russell Latipe and I used to have uh, nice wee chats about what kind of red wine we had if I was refereeing him on the Saturday or the Sunday. Um, but in the main, it was um, proper proper pre uh, preparation. And uh, I, I go back to the thing there, as I said there, it's more about the, um, the physical preparation, make sure that you're uh, physically in tune with the game. And in terms of in-game management, the, the the two aspects that we hear about, obviously the decisions are, are the key, but we normally hear about speed of a referee and position, and that's those are the two things that normally when, when pundits are analysing referees, if it's not something to do with a decision, it'll be based on either the speed or the positioning. Talk me through what, what they're like in an in-game situation is... Is there a certain position that you know you've got to be in at certain times? And in terms of speed, uh, talk me through how you handle that, because obviously players are sprinting, stop, start all the time. But as a referee, it can be slightly different because obviously you're not getting into challenges. You're literally following the ball in many cases. That's correct. And obviously there's techniques. Uh, but the, the, the first thing that you're told is expect the unexpected. So don't be complacent when you're getting into the game. Um, there, there were... Kind of probably more standard positioning for referees um, when I was coming through the ranks. Um, I don't know if you see referees running uh, backwards as much as you used to, and um, I was kind of renowned for I could probably run faster backwards than I could forward. Um, but that the, 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 you would run in a diagonal um, from one uh, corner of the, the, the penalty area diagonally up to the, the opposite following the game. Normally, when the goalkeeper's ready to kick the ball out, either by hand or from the floor, um, you would be running backwards, but keeping your eye on them, but obviously looking over your shoulder, making sure that the centre half and centre forward weren't jostling too much in preparation for the ball landing there. Then as, as play progressed, you would more or less try and stick on to your diagonal, maybe maybe coming off it. When I say coming off it, it's probably more coming into the middle of the pitch. But if you watch referees now, you'll see them uh, following play, um, probably not quite sitting on the ball, but much closer to the action. I don't necessarily agree. I think you've got to give yourself a a, a distance of around, and this, there, were, there were studies way back in the day that between 10 and 15 yards away from the ball is probably optimum for a referee's positioning. Uh, too close and you miss certain things, too far away and you obviously miss certain things too. Um, so, and then they're set set positions at corners and at free kicks um, and then it's using your your assistant referees as a lot of your eyes and ears now in the, the good old days um, basically the referees uh, didn't want any interference at all from the linesman other than to say um, that the ball was in and out in or out or it was offside or not um, but in the modern game it's very much a team communicating through the microphone um, in, in particular but obviously subtle signals as well that go on to try and ensure that there's a kind of free-flowing of the game uh, and a lot of the signals that uh, players and fans will not be aware of, but they are in constant communication. So it's, it's to make sure that you get most, if not all, of the decisions correct. And in terms of in-game management, you, you as well as making decisions, you're you're managing people in many ways. You've got two sides that want to win a match and they're doing everything they can and, and you're that sort of go-between during the game. 
How did how did you manage players as such through your career? Were, were you someone that liked to try and have a relationship with them, talk to them, and maybe have a laugh with them when you could, or did you go down the other route of the further away and from them, the better? No, I think um, it would be the uh, the, the former that uh, I, particularly the latter, as you get on in the game and the players trust you, uh, and the the best referees are not the ones who know the the, the the laws of the game better or the technical aspects. It's those that can manage the players better when you actually make a mistake. So it's the rapport building um, that, that, that I would say is key in any uh, any for any referee. Sorry, in any game, the the ability to you know ball a player out if if they needed it to really put them in their place or to warn them. Sometimes it's even better to warn them before they went into a challenge. You can watch players and see that some people are getting a bit frustrated either at their own um, poor performance um, or just maybe the fact that they're getting beat and these guys are determined winners. So you could actually try and talk a player out again into a rash challenge, maybe about 30 seconds, you could see it building up. And I think that was the, the, the key for me anyway, Callum, is um, trying to understand the players and also work with them. Um, great if you could have a laugh with players and uh, you've probably heard it before but you know when players would be telling me I was having a bad game you know I would turn around and say right let's start counting the mistakes from here you know and as soon as they shot something over the crossbar or misplaced a pass it was great to run past them and say I think you're winning here you know so you, you can actually get some some good interactions with the players um, but you don't want to get too friendly because they can take advantage of that but equally I don't think the, the schoolmaster type approach uh, works at all. Um, if I'm being honest, I was probably a wee bit too aggressive, um, particularly in my younger in my younger years. If I had to go back and do it again, I probably wouldn't be quite as aggressive. Um, but I did like to um, challenge players to fights. Now, that might sound a bit strange to, to your listeners right now, but let me tell you, that would be when two players are squaring up to one another um, and to try and defuse things. Uh, rather than them coming to blows and me having to get red cards out, I would just say, look, guys, if you don't stop, I'll batter the two of you. And that would normally just break the tension uh, and we'd get a wee laugh about it. And um, I don't think many referees did that. So uh, it was kind of unique and, and it worked for me. I wouldn't encourage too many younger referees to do that nowadays, let me tell you. Well, as you say, it's important to, to understand the situation. As I say, when, when you're managing people, I mean, I, I, I work in education and you're managing people all the time. And it's important that you know who needs that arm around the shoulder. You know who needs the stern telling, because at the end of the day, it's going to make the game be managed in a, a more effective way. In terms of the big characters that you refereed, was there ever a big character who, for whatever reason, when you were refereeing them, you always felt as if you were booking them or giving them a red card more often than not, just because of the style of their game? Uh, there's a, there's a, a few names that come to mind, but again, I, before I, I, I mention them, I have to say that I've got a very good relationship with these players off the, off the pitch, and I think that's one of the great things that I've enjoyed having retired, is it when you do... You know, you know, a year or two after retiring, you would go to various, um, you know, football league dinners, or you would go to various sporting dinners uh, through business, and you would bump into, you know, players or ex-players, and and the, the the chat was great, and there was a, a great deal of of um, mutual respect. Um, but you know, guys like, uh, well, the the, the top uh, one would be Darren Jackson. It, it got to the stage where Darren would just basically say to me, "When are you booking me today?" 
Stewart, you know, but off the pitch, Dan and I got on really well. We'd actually did some business um, after he'd finished uh, football and, and I was uh, still well, refereeing, but also working for Alvin because um, referees are not full-time professionals, as you know, Callum. So I think uh, Darren would be right up there. Barry Ferguson uh, would be another one. Uh, I remember him telling me one day it was his in, in the... The tunnel areas were going out, and he says, you can't book me today, Stuart, it's my birthday, but uh, you, you probably can work out what I said to him halfway through the game. I said, well, here's your birthday card, Barry, you know, and uh, he, he got a yellow card for some kind of challenge or something that he said, but uh, it was all, all done with the best possible taste, and uh, as I say, we, uh, we we got on well with most of the players that uh, had run-ins with, but there weren't too many of them. There weren't too many run-ins regularly with uh, players, but those two stand out. You mentioned there the part-time nature of refereeing in, in, in the Scottish game. What are the challenges with that? Because, again, fans, uh, journalists, people see the referee as the person on the Saturday uh, managing that game. But at the same time, because of the nature of Scottish football, you, you've got a job Monday to Friday. What are the challenges? And as I say, how do you balance that crucially too? Well, what I used to say regularly when people would discuss this is uh, in Scotland, you've got um, part-time referees with a full-time professional approach to it. Um, on average, uh, I counted it up between refereeing and training, uh, which would have been just about every day. Um, we would probably put in between 21 and 25 hours a week uh, to refereeing. So that obviously a lot of that was around our, our own day job. Um, I used to also say that, um, you know, if you think professional referees is the way forward, full-time professional referees, just look at my counterparts in England when I was refereeing, and they were full-time professionals, but they were making the same mistakes that we would make. I think one advantage of not being a full-time uh, referee is that you do get the distraction away from thinking refereeing 24-7, you know, going out and doing your own job and invariably your business contacts or your colleagues want to talk about your perceived mistakes at the weekend or whatever these players said to you. So you would still not escape fully from refereeing, and you, nor wouldn't you want to. Um, but I, I do think that the balance is right. What we have in Scotland or what we had in Scotland, I don't know exactly what it's like at the moment, but um, being able to hold down your own job, but um, a big commitment to, to refereeing. I have to say I was so fortunate that my... Uh, employer, I'm still with them, KPMG, were hugely supportive of me, especially when I'd uh, travel abroad. And that was kind of taking three days uh, out of my week, my working week. And of course, I had my colleagues to cover for me uh, in certain instances. So I, I, I was always grateful for that and it enabled me to do my job and uh, my refereeing, hopefully, to the best of my ability. How good that was, for, that's for somebody else to say, Callum, but uh, it certainly gave me the chance uh, to do it as best as I could. I, I want to ask you about managing an error, and I don't want to, to have this interview dominated by refereeing errors because at the same, at, at the end of the day, we've watched in recent years. Uh, Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher went to Stockley Park, um, and they were involved in trying to get some decisions correct. Leanne Crichton and Stephen Thompson in Scotland trained with with the, the referees recently, and again how difficult they found it when they were in the midst of it really highlighted to the viewers and, and to fans across uh, both Scotland and England that it's, it's a far harder job than, than we think we can do in the armchair. 
But when when you're in a game, I, Stuart, I would compare refereeing to goalkeeping in many senses. If you're a midfielder, you might make a wayward pass and get away with it. Normally, if you're a goalkeeper and you make a big mistake, it leads to a goal, and that can be quite similar for referees. How do you handle that spotlight of an error? And crucially also, if you make an error in the game and you know it's an error, maybe you, you've, you've made the decision and then it just hits you afterwards. How do you handle that as a human being, first and foremost? Well, it's, it's interesting you say human being. I'm sure a lot of fans don't think referees are human beings, but I can assure you we are. We have got uh, our feelings as well, but we try to grow a, a thick skin. Um, interesting, a lot of the times we're not aware of the mistakes that we may have made. Um, or perceived to have made. Um, it's only, you know, I can think of a few high-profile ones, and, and I'm happy to to mention them. But you know, I uh, my last ever game was um, Rangers Aberdeen, where uh, Kyle Lafferty feigned a, 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 an alleged headbutt. Well, it wasn't an alleged headbutt. It wasn't a headbutt uh, from Charlie McGrew, and um, I fell for it. I thought it was an absolute stick-on. Uh, red card. Uh, nothing would have convinced me. A lot of people thought that that had been my assistant um, who had given me the decision. And if he had have come in, I would have said no. I had the best view there. And nothing would convince me that uh, that hadn't been a headbutt until I'd, I'd seen it. Well, I actually didn't need to go home and see it at night. It was just through conversation with um, Walter Smith uh, after the match about something else that uh, I thought, geez, he's not sticking up for his player here. So um, there must be uh, there must be something. Uh, a miss. So a lot of the times you're not aware of the mistake until you see it later. So that doesn't really affect your refereeing. However, there will be occasions where you've blown for a, a, a corner and you can then tell the body language that that should be a goal kick. And do referees try to balance that up? Absolutely. You wouldn't want to see a goal scored from a corner that should have been a goal kick. But what you don't do, and again, this uh, is a, a a misconception amongst fans is that you don't make two mistakes because you've made one mistake. And what I mean is there, if you've given a penalty that was seen as being questionable or soft in inverted commas, don't go up the park and try and balance it out by giving a penalty to the other side. Because as a referee, you're coming off the pitch, your supervisor is going to tell you, no, you didn't just make one mistake, you made two. And two mistakes at that level of penalty kicks basically nullify your report. In effect, you get a poor a poor report. So you, you're as well coming off with a mediocre report with one mistake than coming off with a poor one for two mistakes. So that that might not nail, nail the myth that referees just balance penalties and big decisions out, red cards, etc. Referees try to keep consistency. Um, so you might get two soft penalties, one at either end of the, the pitch in the same half, that's a totally different thing from just trying to balance. Uh, sorry, from trying to balance out a mistake. But uh, once it once a decision is made, you've really got to to forget about it. Easier said than done at times. But um, the, because the game's so fast, uh, you can actually move on quite quickly. And um, it's only really after the game that you beat yourself up, or um, you know you you try and learn from it and make sure it doesn't happen again. One of the aspects of making those big decisions that fascinates me is the fact that you can have 70 or 60 or 70,000 people in a stadium. The home team has a shout for a penalty and you have that roar on top of the referee. How do you handle that situation? Because again, human nature might be, well, there's 60,000 people paying for a penalty. 
that could sway my mind. But as you mentioned earlier on, as a referee, you've got to have that thick skin. How do, how do you handle that and how do you develop that thick skin to make that objective view that rather than, than, than listening to the crowd? Well, what I tried to do um, was um, if there was anything 50-50, and, and trust me, there are decisions where you're looking at and sometimes you're like that. There's a foul, I can see it's a foul or a throw in. That's maybe a less controversial one, but who did it come off last? So you know the ball's out. And, and sometimes you have got to make an educated guess and hope that you get it right. Um, if a crowd's being for a penalty, for example, and you're pretty sure that it's not a penalty, um, stick to your guns. Even even if you're wrong, I would much rather see a referee, and personally I would much rather myself stick to what I saw rather than what um, you know 60,000 fans might have seen. Now, where it, where it worked against me in a cup final... Um, was uh, the Celtic Dunfermline 2004 cup final. I think it was Henrik Larsson's last game for Celtic. And Dunfermline had a, 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 a sortie into the box and they threw the ball in and uh, the ball was cleared. It, it, it was cleared and it broke to Henrik Larsson. He ran up the pitch and as he regularly did, he made no mistake and he put it uh, in the net. Now, I can't remember if that was the first goal of the match, but... About 10 minutes later, and, and obviously I, I know this after, uh, having watched it after the game, but 10 minutes later, Sky at the time eventually picked up that, that the ball had been armed away by Bobo Baldi. Now, in the modern game, just now it would be a stick-on penalty. Even back then, it, it wouldn't have been seen as intentional. Um, was it deliberate? No. Um, so... I'm comforted in, on one level to know at the time in 2004 that wouldn't necessarily have been a stick-on penalty. But the key thing here is that no fans or very few fans shouted. I'm sure if it had been up the other end and it was beside all the Celtic fans, um, there might have been that shout going up, but I didn't see the, uh, the, the, the handball or the ball hitting the hand. So I wouldn't have been swayed by it. But could referees be swayed by it? Absolutely. Again, I said earlier in the, the, the conversation, uh, human, uh, we're only human beings after all, and some are. Um, sometimes you can, you could be swayed by the crowd, but the, the key the key thing is be be brave to yourself, be strong to yourself, and true to yourself, and and try not be swayed. Um, easier said than done, but uh, that's what you've got to try and do. You, you mentioned cup finals. You refereed the Scottish Cup final in two thousand and four and in 2008, how do you handle a cup final? Do, how, do you change your preparation in any way? Or is it important to say, yes, it's a massive occasion, but it's another game and I prepare the same way I always do? Um, it, it is slightly different. Uh, I also did the 2007 Celtic Dunfermline as well. It was the same two teams from 2004. The Jimmy Johnson the cup final, as it was dubbed. And I was lucky enough to do a, a couple abroad as well. Um, the reason I'm mentioning that is that a cup final is definitely seen as something a wee bit different. It's not your run-of-the-mill game. You should referee it the same way, but the um, the preparation is, is slightly different, um, partly because the pre-match uh, for referees in the cup final day is different. Um, way back then, uh, you were taken to a hotel for um, a pre-match um, meal, whereas that happens regularly now. But back in the day, that was your kind of one-off if you're lucky enough to be in the cup final. And then you would get to Hamden 
um, a bit earlier than the, the normal. If it's a three o'clock kickoff at home, you have to be there an hour and a half before kickoff, which um, would be there probably about half past 12. And of course, there's a an atmosphere around a cup final. And, and again, lucky enough, um, the cup finals, the, the Scottish cup finals anyway, were in May. So generally the weather was good. There was a bit of warmth in the air. There was just a, a feeling of, um, it was almost like a festival. And all of the SFA supervisors, they would meet as well pre-match and you would go and be presented to them and you would get a small presentation from the, the, the Scottish Football Association referees. So it, it was different. Um, but once that whistle went, um, that all went out the window and, and really, you know, you've heard people saying that the cup finals always, he's, he would normally have sent him off because it's a cup final, he's not sending him off. That may have happened back in the day, but certainly since I was refereeing at the, that level and beyond, I think if anybody commits a, a, a yellow or a red card defence in a cup final, they're getting what's coming to them. And that leniency is not there now, as it might have been uh, pre-me um, refereeing cup finals. And in terms of um, big games, you, you mentioned the fact that the preparation for a cup final is slightly different because of the, the formalities that you go through. In terms of the sort of powder keg fixture of Scottish football, how on earth do you get your head around refereeing, being on the line, being fourth official at a Celtic versus Rangers or Rangers versus Celtic match? Because the scrutiny that comes with that is almost like being a high-profile politician in, in Prime Minister's <laughs> questions. You know, it's the scrutiny is just intense from start to finish. Yeah, there's no question that uh, an old firm game uh, brought a level of scrutiny uh, that you don't get anywhere else, uh, you know regardless of the games that I've done in Europe, um, the, the old firm game was uh, topped. Actually, a lot of people would agree with me that actually refereeing the Hearts-Hibs games um, at the, the times when I was refereeing them, because a, a lot of the players were from Edinburgh and they were true jambos or they were true hibbies, um, was actually on the pitch arguably tougher than some of the old firm games, but the, the, the old firm game brought its own pressures just because of the um, the uh, interest around the world and what it meant. And every single throw in, every single challenge uh, would have been scrutinised and, and, and invariably you get it wrong, um, at least by half of the, uh, the population watching. Um, I can't really put it into words properly what it meant, but it, it, it would start off in the, the, the Sunday night. You would be waiting for the appointments coming out in the Monday morning. And a large part of you were hoping that you would be on the game you'd be refereeing it. And when you got the uh, ballot through and you were appointed to do the next old firm game, it was a wee bit of, oh, geez, why me? And if you didn't get it, it would be a case of, why me? It just meant, you know, the, the, the you wanted it, but it was a poison chalice almost. But uh, it was fantastic because the, the, the lead-in to the weekend for the game just built up, the pressure built up, the interest, scrutiny, and it was probably the, the, the only games in Scotland where the SFA would allow you to do some media work. Um, you know, good old uh, scoreboard, uh, or was it Radio Clyde on a Friday night? Maybe get a wee interview with BBC, a couple of the newspapers would want uh, a wee bit of you, which was a wee bit uh, unusual um, at the start. Um, it was just building up your experience in dealing with the press, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and then the morning of the game or the night before the game, very much like a player, uh, very difficult to settle. Um, 
because you just didn't know what was coming. And as I said earlier, expect the unexpected. And invariably it happened in various uh, ways during a, an old firm game. Very rarely do I remember coming off a game thinking that uh, that was easy and it went well. Um, it takes you a couple of beers to unwind and then watch the game back and hope that any mistakes that you made were minor ones and they didn't have a, a major impact in the outcome of a game. If you've made a decision, and I don't mean an old firm game, any game, if you've made a decision and you watch it back, as you say, after a few beers and you realise that your decision may have impacted upon a key moment, whether it be a goal or a sending off, how do you react to that in the aftermath? Is there, is there the human side of it where you maybe want to phone the manager or the player involved and apologise? Or do you just need to dust yourself down and think, right, it was an error, but I, I can I can I can move on from it and improve from it. No, oh, I used to uh, personally. I don't know how all other referees cope with it. Obviously, I mentioned Hugh and guys we would chat about it, but it would just waste your night and you'd be lying awake thinking about how can I make that mistake? How can I do that? You know, what was it? My positioning was it? Was I distracted by something? Um, was it the speed that it happened? And uh, no, there's there's been a few times, a right few times. Um, that uh, you know, it's, it's it's been a long night, um, but that's what drove, or certainly for me, that's what drove me on was to make sure that if I made a mistake one week, I wasn't going to make uh, the same mistake a second time or a third time. Um, I said there have been many times, you know, you, even two big mistakes in a season, um, that, you know, the, the press could hang you out to dry a wee bit in the back of your second big mistake or third, if that's what it was, and and. You know, players are sorry. Referees are no different to players that you go through times when you're you're right on form, and then other times where it's maybe just not quite uh, going for you. But um, so initially hated it um, and beat beat myself up quite a bit. Um, but I used it uh, or channeled it um, to to try and make me improve, make me better. And yes, there's been times when I've uh, picked up the phone to to a manager or a player. Um, sometimes I would I would agree with them, uh, uh, you know, a game that I would go and watch it and I would phone them. Um, but I loved the phone calls when I phoned them and said that I said I'd phone you if I'd made a mistake. Well, I'm phoning you to tell you I didn't think I'd made a mistake. And have you changed? Have you changed your mind in that? And sometimes the managers would say that. Yep, we thought it was a penalty at the time, and we've seen it against Stuart, and you were right. That wasn't a penalty. And equally, I would hold up my hands and say sorry, I didn't call that correctly, and um, I've not done it deliberately. Um, but I'm man enough to admit that I got it wrong. And I think admitting uh, you've made a mistake or been been completely strong in your belief that you haven't um, is important in any walk of life, and, and I think that's refreshing to hear. As well as refereeing in Scotland, Stuart, over a hundred continental and international appointments um, throughout your career, refereed in well over thirty countries as well. What was it like refereeing in the continent and on the international stage? Um, magic. Um, you know, players will tell you that, um, especially those that have maybe only had a, a, a few uh, European trips, there'll be some that might uh, have, you know, our top players that have been uh, week in, well, not so much week in, week out, but certainly year in, year out, you know, playing in Europe regularly. Maybe it loses it a wee bit of its um, uh, magic or sparkle, but certainly when I, I reflect back on it, I, I just love the the whole atmosphere of uh, building up to leaving the country. So you'd be packing your your suitcase with all your uh, bag, uh, sorry, all your um, refereeing gear, your clothes, because you're away for three days, 
and then making sure that the, your fellow match officials, because 99 times out of 100, it would be your fellow Scottish match officials that were with you. So you to manage all of the, the arrangements and getting to the airport and flying out and being met. And we would fly business class most of the time. So again, that was um, a fantastic experience. Uh, you know, you'd be picked up by either the club or one of the club's representatives or the, or the federation representatives at the airport. A lot of the times, didn't even need to go through security. They would have you whisked away as a VIP. So these are all fantastic experiences. And I'm just a wee guy for Wishy. At the end of the day, you know, a Lanarkshire boy, and uh, to have experienced that, then, you know, the day of the game, you've got your security meeting in the morning. So you've got to get to the stadium and you go through a whole rigmarole and then you, the referee gets a chance to speak to both clubs, their representatives, what's expected. Um, then you would go away and have a, a pre-match lunch and then into your hotel, uh, assuming, of course, that the game's in the, the evening, um, the Champions League quarter to eight, quarter to nine, if you were abroad, obviously. Um, you would have a, a, kind of a healthy lunch and then you'd go and rest for a couple of hours and build up just like a player would do. And then driving to the stadium, particularly the, the, the Champions League stuff. And the, 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 it was like a film set for Champions League. You know, the, 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 the marketeers that go around, the attention that it gets from all over the, the world, uh, television. So you're very much fundamental to what's going, going to happen during the 90 minutes. And it, just to build up to the game as well, the nerves building and the magic of the uh, anthem, just at, uh, as you're lining up with invariably some superstars of world football. And we started the show talking about just how much, um, you know, we, we loved football. I grew up kicking a ball. So to be standing shoulder to shoulder, whether it be with a Zidane or whoever it might be, was just absolutely magical. No other way to describe it. When you're refereeing the likes of a, a Zidane, a Kaka, Ronaldinho, these type of guys, What's it like if you have to talk to them, whether it's to caution them, um, give them a warning? Is there a, is there a moment of a surreal feeling where you think, geez, oh, this is Zidane I've got to book here? No, it's not, because once the whistle goes, um, you, you just revert to type and you, you make sure that you're doing the right things that you should be doing. Um, as some of your listeners might know, I, uh, I in my second Champions League game ever, I ended up sending off Zidane. Um, quite early on in a game and then four minutes later or a few minutes later uh, his wee pal Edgar Davids followed suit for two yellow cards that's quite a long story which uh, uh, is probably not enough time to go into here but the, the point of that uh, uh, raising that one is that it doesn't matter who they are um, a referee should not be uh, affected one way or the other it's if it's a red card defence you give it a red card if it's a yellow card you give the yellow card um, you asked earlier about preparation. Um, that that was the biggest one of the biggest learning points for me is that I went into that game thinking that oh I'd been to it was the Dalalpe Stadium in Turin, uh, Juventus were at home to Hamburg, and I thought I've been here before. You know it's Juventus, it's Hamburg. Yep, seen them in the telly. I'll be fine. What I hadn't realised is and the reason that the two players were sent off was that there'd been so much bad blood in the first game uh, of the group. Um, and uh, Zidane had actually been sent off in that game and I hadn't done my homework and if I'd known that I would have understood why quite early on he was um, quite uh, stressed 
about the game and he was challenging quite a lot of uh, early decisions, even things like throw-ins in the lake and guys like Conte, um, who was obviously latterly Chelsea manager. He was the captain of Juventus and he was quite wound up as well. So it, it wouldn't have changed my uh, decision-making because Zidane was guilty of a headbutt and David's uh, of dissent and then of a very, very reckless challenge. So those decisions wouldn't have been affected, but it might have changed how I started refereeing the game and I might have been able to communicate a bit better with the players. So it was a great uh, learning point for me in my early Champions League career to, to do a wee bit of research, make sure you knew what happened in any previous games, just in case there's that bad blood. But um, no, you've got to be true to yourself when you're dealing with um, whether it be you know, the top players in the world or those just setting out to try and become the top players in the world. Um, they're all treated equally. And in terms of those travels, the different cultures, the, the different tournaments, whether it be the Champions League, the Super Cup, even the Intertoto Cup you were involved in when, yeah. when it was around years ago, it, 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 as you've said, it's an incredible experience uh, to be involved in that, to, to be able to look back on it now and say that, that you were there is, is is something that I imagine you're, you're very proud of. As I say, as a, as a fellow Scotsman, I'm proud that, that Scottish referees like yourself are able to, to work at that level and represent the nation. Just describe what it's like when, when you're coming towards the end of your career, because I talked to so many players and they talk about maybe the, the, the cliche, my legs have gone, I've lost that wee bit of pace. Does that come into things as a referee and you think, right, I, I should step aside maybe at the end of this season for, for, for the good of the game and the good of myself? Yeah, if it was for the good of the game, I'm sure the fans would have uh, wished I'd uh, chalked it a few years earlier, but um, I'll, I'll come back to that, Cam, because you, 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 you highlighted something in my mind. One of my best, or probably the best experience of going abroad and um, was uh, I was fourth official to Hugh Dallas at um, Uruguay, Brazil, and the game was getting played in the Montevideo Stadium, which hosted the first World Cup. So that was pretty special. And I mentioned earlier, and I'm not just playing it down, but I'm fundamentally a, a, a wee guy from uh, Wishy, uh, Lanarkshire, and to, to be uh, involved in a game of that magnitude, and this was the qualifier for the World Cup in 2002. So this was 2000, summer of 2001, and um, I'm in the dressing room just before the game because as fourth official, believe it or not, I had to check the passports of all the players. And that, here I am in the Brazil dressing room with all of the passports and one after the other superstar, Roberto Carlos, Rivaldo, um, many others, uh, you know, queuing up like schoolboys, getting their passport checked. And I'm sitting there going, geez, this is unbelievable. And it's something that I'll stay with me for a long, long time, hopefully forever, in terms of memories. Uh, it's great, but going back to the, the question of do you know when it's time to go? Yes, I probably had a wee bit of illness, which I'll not go into, but it, it was along the lines of a, a bit of a, a viral infection that turned into a wee bit of ME, and I knew that in my last season, I wanted to see it out, both from my international career, which finished in 2007, um, and I finished uh, 2009, uh, 2009-2010 in, in Scotland and being honest, I probably could have curtailed it maybe three months before I did in Scotland um, because I started my illness uh, in 2007. I had a broken arm that took me out of the game, believe it or not, for a wee while and I thought, yeah, I can come back. And I did come back to a point, but I, being honest, I wasn't firing in all cylinders. 
and then it got so close to the end of the season, I thought I could maybe just get through here. Um, if I had to do it all again, I would probably have chucked it uh, three months earlier than I did, and I might not have had that embarrassing situation with uh, Kyle Lafferty and Charlie Mulgrew. And in terms of retirement, I always find it intriguing that as a referee, you're scrutinised by the media. Um, maybe the media ask you for comment, but you can't go on the record. But when you finish refereeing, um, channels, BT, Sky, other, other, other avenues, now that you've retired, want to speak to you. What's it like when you go from being the person who the media want to speak to but can't to being the person who can now speak to the media and sometimes you're asked about refereeing and maybe even some former colleagues? I, I enjoyed uh, that said, Callum. Um, uh, again, you might know, others might not know, but the last couple of years I was working at BT as the, the BT ref. So yes, I was still making mistakes in the eyes of many fans, even though I had a, a video in front of me. Why did I enjoy doing it? I had my own column in the record for a year and uh, I was regularly on Sky and the like. Again, why I'm saying that is that I liked to go out there and try and portray the referee's side of things, not, you know, pardon the pun, blindly um, support them. But I think it's important for fans to understand what the referee might have been thinking in a certain situation where he, he may have got something wrong or indeed if he did get something right, that wasn't commonly known, then I think it was incumbent upon me and, and, and fellow referees that uh, retire. If you get an opportunity to, to, to speak uh, publicly to the fans, uh, is, is to really try and support the referee. Um, I never never slated the referee, and sadly, former colleagues of mine, when I was a young referee, would uh, you know take great delight in uh, getting into the newspapers and and slaughtering, whether it be me, Hugh Dallas, or, or some of the other guys that I went through uh, the ranks with, such as Wally Young, Kenny Clark, John Robotham, uh, Dougie McDonald, you know, there's a, a number of top referees in there. Um, so I enjoyed uh, the media side of things. Um, I think when you've be, been out of the game as long as I am now, I think there's a time when you do step back and uh, allow, you know, whoever the next high-profile referee is to retire, whether it's uh, Willie Collum. Uh, I don't know how long William's got to go, but if, he, if he's not getting involved with SFA, then William would be a fantastic panellist to have on because he, he might come across as quite a, a straight-laced, um, angry uh, wee referee at times, but he's got a fantastic sense of humour. Very dry, like yourself, in education as a teacher. Uh, back in the day, he's still involved in education. Uh, with the, the council and um, guys like that, them or him, sorry, can impart his uh, knowledge and experience and support the younger referees as they're coming through too. Life after football for you, you mentioned earlier that you work for KPMG. What's life like after refereeing when obviously you were, you were part-time refereeing and then at work, whereas after refereeing you can commit to it more? Is, is, is there part of you that, despite the fact you enjoy your job uh, as, as a no Stuart, is there part of you that sometimes thinks, oh, I, I miss those three-day trips in Europe or I miss the Saturday feeling? Um, I think what I missed, uh, if I'm being extremely candid here, is that um, a year or two after, uh, refereeing. Um, I know there's a lot talked about mental health at the moment, but I certainly did have my uh, challenges. I was not as happy as I, as I used to be when I was refereeing, when I had that, um, that buzz that you get from refereeing, believe it or not. I, I, I liken it to a, a, a bungee jumper, you know, that 
why am I doing this? But you still want to do it, and, and then you do it once, and it goes well, and you want to do it again, even though people think you might be off your head. Um, so it was tough for me. I think one of my saving graces was that uh, as I was finishing refereeing, my uh, elder daughter, Emma, she got into football um, because I used to go and referee a tournament over in uh, Dallas uh, during the Easter holidays, and I was able to take the family with me. And Emma got in, right into her football. So for the first couple of years when I retired, um, I was lucky enough that uh, I knew most of the referees and they would leave me a couple of complimentary tickets. And, uh, it wasn't running away to Celtic Park or Ibrox. Uh, we, we loved going to the smaller grounds, uh, your mother walks, Hamilton's, Queen's Park, anything around us, St Myrne. And again, that's I mentioned earlier about the referee, uh, sorry, the football family. Um, we were welcomed by and large with open arms and you know, invited into the boardroom for a cup of tea, either before the game or at half time if somebody saw you there. And so that that, that was nice, but um, I did very much miss the camaraderie, um, you know, meeting up with my colleagues on a Saturday, going to training on a Tuesday night and having a bit of the banter with the guys that maybe had a, a tough game on the Saturday, maybe hadn't handled it as well as they might have. And that's how you get through it. You get the rip taken right out of you. And that, that built your character to make sure that it wasn't you the following week. So yes, it, it was tough, but I am where I am now and that, that's quite a wee bit away from refereeing. I've lucky I had my job, as I mentioned again earlier, that uh, I do think having your job is important, not being a full-time, 100% full-time professional referee uh, is the right thing. Um, so I've had enough distractions and obviously I've got a family, so I've managed to catch up with my girls growing up. Um, I retired, uh, Emma would be about 13 and Lucy 9 so I managed to spend a wee bit of time with them and uh, reacquaint myself with my wife as well because she was like a sole parent most of the time we were just actually chatting tonight that I actually remembered one parents night that I attended and trust me there weren't too many of them and these are the sacrifices that uh, again get back to something you mentioned earlier that um, the fans don't necessarily see that you're having to give up you know important family occasions um, even things like New Year's Day when football's on referee can't partake with their family because they've got games in Boxing Day or they've got games in New Year's Day. Um, I don't look for the fiddle there for uh, from any fan. It's just that's what you did to become a referee and enjoy it. Um, so it's uh, it's it's great to look back on. In fact, we're moving house and I've just been up my loft the last couple of weekends and going through some of the, the old memorabilia that's up there and it bring back some fantastic memories. Um, wouldn't like to go back refereeing right now even if I was fit enough and young enough, but uh, it was great when it happened, you know, when it lasted. Brilliant. And, and last question for you, Stuart, the, the insight you've given has been absolutely fascinating. I've got, a, I've got a close friend who actually is a referee um, and, and, and he obviously talks to me about how tough being a referee can be and the human element of driving home in the car going, was it a good game? Was it not? What advice would you give to any aspiring referee listening? Because, for, for someone like yourself, as, as we've talked about in this interview, that's refereed cup finals at home and abroad and, and, and refereed the likes of Zidane, you mentioned Davids, um, even we are so Latipe in Scotland and many <laughs> others. What advice would you give to them coming through? Because it's a different world they're in now. When, obviously not in Scotland necessarily at the moment because we don't have VAR. But if you think about the big European and international occasions, you've got VAR now, you've got goal line technology. Or, or if you've not got goal line technology, you might have extra officials. What advice would you give to them in the, the current situation that they're going in? 
No, I think the advice uh, now uh, would have been uh, 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 you know same ten years ago. And the first thing, and again we touched on it earlier, is build your rapport with the players. Don't be uh, aloof. Don't be standoffish. Yeah, be assertive when you need to be assertive. And uh, players do like strong referees. I've spoken to many players since I retired, and that, they say that's one thing that they liked about me. You know, I was um, firm but fair. Would be the, uh, the the phrase that I heard a few times. So that's what I would pass on to the younger referees. Be firm, but be fair and, and, and communicate to the players that want to communicate because if you can get them working with you, they can help you manage the players that are maybe not um, as easily um, or, or not easily enough working with you. So that would be the first thing is, is work with the players and build that rapport. But be true to yourself. You know, if you see something, don't think how it's going to be uh, or how it might look elsewhere. Uh, great if you've got VAR to correct a decision that you might have got wrong, but you know, call it as you see it. Because more often than not, your initial instinct is right. It'll not be 100% correct, but let try and be a, 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 as close to 100% right yourself without relying on VAR. VAR is there as a backup. Um, and, and you know, we could talk again probably about another hour about the benefits and pitfalls of VAR. That'll be for somebody else. So I would just say to the, the, the young referee, be true to yourself, but work with the players. Don't be a school teacher uh, type or traffic warden type approach to them. Brilliant. Stuart, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for your time and, and the insight this evening. Thanks for the invite to come on, Callum, and good luck for the rest of the shows. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a 